All right. <clears throat> My name's Andy. What's going on, guys? <clears throat> For those of you who don't know me, uh, I have a wife, two kids. Uh, I'm from America. That's going to come out anyway, so I'll just put it up at the front. Uh, I work at the uni with a parachurch ministry called The Navigators. Um, but uh, yeah, what's going on? What's, um, what's going on? Guess that, guess that question ever? What's going on? If you had any lingering question about the nature of people, about the state of our world, modern well-being, I imagine in some way, shape, or form over the last months it's been slightly shattered, pushed, demolished, destroyed. Jerry prayed about uh, perhaps it's been through ISIS, these attacks, and uh, you could list the cities for a few minutes. You could talk about beheadings and uh, destruction of places. Maybe that's messed with how you see the world. Perhaps for you, while you feel the weight of that, it was Brexit. How could England do this? Perhaps you look at my country and you say, Trump, really? What's going on? I say the same thing, eh? Perhaps closer to home, it's been this trial regarding young Moko. I don't know if you've seen this. Um, That was particularly hard for me as this child that was beaten uh, to death was the age of my daughter. Or the upspike in drugs, firearms arrest for my wife and I, we've been greatly impacted by the shootings in the U.S. My wife happens to be from Fort Worth, Texas. Over the weekend, one of the deadliest cop shootings in the history of my country has happened. Consider, consider this. These men hold up uh, on tops of parking garages, things like that, to, to shoot police who are protecting protesters protesting against police. And the way that they tried to take this person out was they sent a robot in that was carrying a bomb. We live in a world where there's actually part of me that says, yeah, I guess we need robot-carrying bomb things to take care of people trying to kill other people. What kind of world do we live in? What's going on? What framework do you come to these kind of questions and situations thinking about? Where do you go when you watch the news and you feel like the, the earth kind of feels like it's quaking beneath my feet? What do you do? Where do you turn? Does it test your faith in people? Do you just conclude all of these people are weird? Does it make you pause and say, God, what's going on? Can you change something? Will you? Are you in control? Perhaps you just scroll on in social media or flick the channel. Oh, sweet, the Simpsons. They're not going to get political. Where do you go? Do you have a growing list of people you just want to avoid? Noted, American, don't talk to. The answer to these questions, these struggles, these heartaches, honestly, I'm telling you are in this passage we're reading. The like solution for the world in these situations. The best solution, the foundation of any solution that can endure for any period of time in every situation is in this passage. Let me just pray a second and then we'll dig in. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for um, this place where we can step outside the bad news of the world and into the good news of your word. Your word. Would you help us to do that in this time and help me to do that? In Jesus' name, amen. 
our passage finds its initial point of context, as all passages do, as a continuation of what came just before. Um, So at the end of chapter 10, we are finishing this section. The previous two or three sermons, we've been hearing this repeated refrain from Hebrews. Um, If you've you've not been, you should listen online. They're fantastic. Um, That Jesus is better. Jesus is this better sacrifice that does away with the slaughtering of animals for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is the one who actually can intercede on our behalf to God. He's better. Jesus is the better covenant, the better mediator, the better promises, the better rewards, the better everything. It's better, it's better, it's better, it's better, is what we've been hearing. At the end of chapter 10, we hear these words, starting in verse 35. Uh, The words should be on the screen. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Don't give up the confidence you have in these better things about Jesus. For you need endurance so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet, in a very little while, the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. What's at stake here? The promises, the rewards. The better promise, better sacrifice, better, 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 better. Don't throw away your confidence, for you need endurance. How do we do this? What does this look like? Verse 39, we're not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and obtain life. Think think about this for a second. There's even more on the line in this for you than there is when you turn on the news. There's even more on the line with whether or not you have faith because it says having faith obtains life. Shrinking back, not having faith, destroyed. And by the way, this isn't clickbait. Does everybody know this term, clickbait? You, you scroll on social media and you see this article and it's like, when the little girl got on stage and opened her mouth, my jaw dropped. Or my friend tried this one weird exercise and got totally ripped. Check this out. You see all these clickbait kind of articles. It's not clickbait. It's not saying like the woman came on and pulled out faith. You won't believe what happened next. That's not what's happening. It's not my friend shrunk back and got destroyed. Now this, this I think is, is the most common sense way to say this. As in God is saying through the author of the Hebrews, the situation is plain. You either shrink back and are destroyed or you endure by faith and you obtain life. The ESV says not just obtain life, but preserves your souls. And the difference is faith. I can hear the skepticism. I hear it. Uh, Faith? ISIS? Faith? The ills of the world? Faith? Really? Isn't it outdated? Is this a real answer? Is this a Christian platitude that we just kind of walk into a room and expect a God to be like, have faith? I'm convinced that it isn't. I'm convinced this is the answer. But let's keep this question in mind as we examine the text. Faith defined. The word faith appears in the New Testament over 240 times. Uh, That's quite a lot. (laughs) And some of these phrases regarding faith have become so commonplace to anybody who's been around Christianity for any amount of time, 
that they seem to go in one ear and out the other. And to anybody who hasn't been around Christianity for any amount of time, seem like, what? Walk by faith, not by sight? Is that smart? Is that smart? By the way, this dent on my forehead, if you can see it, comes from walking by faith, not by sight. I walked into my door frame at 2 a.m. in the morning trying to call my crying daughter, and I knocked myself out and gashed my head open. That's not what the Bible's saying when it says walk by faith, not by sight. But some of these phrases are so memed, so used, so just drivelized, they feel meaningless. But this is a concept that's so vibrant, so essential, so prevalent, we need a serious, weighty understanding of what faith is if we ever have a hope of enduring and obtaining life. There's an old definition of faith uh, that I'd like to give you um, that I find incredibly helpful in grasping what's the Bible talking about when it's talking about faith. It's simple, it's this. Faith is knowledge, conviction, and trust. Biblical faith is knowledge, conviction, and trust. True biblical faith isn't this uh, emotion thrust into the void of life. Faith, love, joy, that's that's not what we're talking about. Nor is it the denial of any actual understanding, reason, logic, or knowing how to not walk into a doorframe. But faith begins with knowledge and understanding of certain things. You can't have biblical faith in something without having an understanding of it. In the context we're being told, have faith in Christ, the better sacrifice, better priest, better, better promise. And you can't have faith in him if you don't know anything about him. But it's not knowledge alone. It requires conviction or assent. Uh, it requires an actual agreement to an understanding. So for instance, I have a base of knowledge of things that I totally disagree with, but I could explain to you readily. Um, There's theological concepts that um, I have read up on and know in and out and think are totally wrong, and I'm ready to argue against them. To have faith, you have to have an assent, an agreement with it. But faith isn't a head nod. It's knowledge, it's conviction, and it's trust or dependence, or reliance. Biblical faith doesn't stop at our heads. It has to translate into the walkings of our life, a reliance on Christ. And this is where the emphasis of Hebrews 11 lies. I would argue that in this passage, knowledge and conviction are are assumed at all points. And we'll see some of it. But the focus is on enduring in a state of dependence, reliance, trust that leads to action. Verse 1, all these verses I'm reading should be on the screen. Now, faith is the reality or the assurance of what is hoped for, the proof or the conviction of what is not seen. For our ancestors won God's approval by it. I've I've included the footnotes of reality, assurance, proof, conviction, because I think it seems like the understanding for us today lies between the two. Because we can't say faith is a reality, but it's not just merely an assurance. Faith is a sure-footed founding in the reality to come. And it's proof and conviction of what is not seen. Because without faith, verse 6, it's impossible to please God. For the one who would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. In illustration, verse 7, by faith Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen, And motivated by godly fear, which is a fantastic thing, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes 
by faith. Verse 1 said it's proof or conviction in what is not seen. That's not mentioning or bringing up some metaphysical ethereal realm in its first meaning. For Noah, this what is not seen was this promised warning. Noah's given the warning, I'm going to flood the earth, build a boat. And so Noah puts his faith in the not seen future, which is what's being mean by conviction of what is not seen, conviction of the future. And he builds an ark to deliver his family. And he becomes an heir of the righteousness that is by faith. The point in talking about faith here is that this is not only how we must endure if we're to obtain the promises, but this is how people have always endured and obtained the promises. What we're about to see is a pretty blitz overview of the Old Testament that helps us to put these things together. Because Hebrews 8 through 10 have constructed this big better than system. So it's, this is the old law, Jesus is better. This is the old sacrifice, Jesus is better. This is the old priesthood, Jesus is better. And then we hit chapter 11 and it's saying this is how it is. This is how it's always been, that people have endured by faith. It's the only way it ever can be, has been, or will be by faith. Therefore, endure. But what, what place can faith have for us? What does this look like? How would I know if I saw it? Watch and see. Faith exemplified. There are too many examples here to go through one by one. So I'd like to give uh, three summary statements about how these men and women of old endured by faith. These are the three points on the outline. Uh, Number one, they endured trusting the promises. They endured trusting the promises. Number two, they endured treasuring Christ and forsaking the world. Treasuring Christ, forsaking the world. And number three, they endured seeing him who is invisible. Seeing him who is invisible. They endured trusting the promises. Verse, verse eight, um, by faith Abraham should be up there. When he was called, he obeyed. And he went to a place he was going to receive as an inheritance. So he was given a promise. A promise. I will give you this place. And he says, yes, let's go. And he went out not knowing where he was going. <laughs> so he didn't look at the real estate and say, yeah, I mean, I like Rimiera. That sounds nice. Um, it said, God said, go. And he said, cool, let's go. I trust you at your word, Lord. He trusted the promises and went. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, co-heirs of the same promise. It's a promise-driven family. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, so he lives in a tent, which is a thing without foundations, longing for that thing with foundations, a city and a home, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself, verse 11, when she was unable to have children, received power to conceive offspring, even though she was past the age, since she considered he who had promised was faithful. Sarah endured and was given power to conceive by trusting in the promise of him who is faithful. Therefore, from one man, in fact, from one as good as dead, they were old as, came offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as innumerable as the grains of sand by the seashore. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. He received the promises and offered up his unique son, the one about whom it was said, your seed will be traced through Isaac. So the promise that Abraham was given was, um, I will bless you and make you great, and through you I will bless all nations. It was a promise for the world, 
And then later, God says, I'm going to do that through Isaac. And so Abraham trusts this promise. And then Abraham's told, I need you to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice to me. And Abraham doesn't pick and choose which promises of God he trusts. He says, I'm going to trust that you're going to do what you're saying you're going to do through Isaac. And so you know what I'm going to believe? Verse 19, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. He said, okay, you've promised this. You've also told me to do this, and I'm going to trust you in both places. And I'm going to believe you can raise my son from the dead after I offer him as a sacrifice. And as an illustration, he received him back. He didn't actually have to offer him. But he endured trusting the promises. What is it we've been promised? Remember 10, uh, 1039, the verse I started with, we've been promised that through faith we can obtain life. We've been promised this better covenant, which is an agreement with God. We've been promised this better sacrifice, better priesthood that allows us into God's presence. We've been promised forgiveness if we believe in Christ to the end. What would your life look like if you endured trusting in these promises? What would be different? What might that mean for you? Secondly, they endured treasuring Christ and forsaking the world. Think about this for a minute. Abraham was believing in a resurrection of a promised seed. Abraham was believing that God could raise from the dead a promised one through whom the nations would be blessed. That's what he was trusting in. John 8, Jesus says, Abraham longed to see my day, and by faith he saw it. Romans 4, Paul testifies to this. Galatians 3 and 4, Paul spends this lengthy amount of time getting you to the conclusion, Abraham trusted in Christ. He was righteous by his trust and dependence on the Messiah to come. We'll see here with Moses. Verse 23 should be on the screen. By faith, after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that he was beautiful, which is hilarious because every parent thinks their kids are beautiful. <laughs> it's like, you can see a picture of my kid and try and convince me that, you know, kind of wonky, uh, but we're probably going to fight about it because they're beautiful. And they didn't fear the king, but they feared God. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. For he considered the reproach or the suffering because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, the richest place in the world in its time. Since his attention, his focus, his passion, his drive was on the reward. This is amazing. Here God is testifying through the author of the Hebrews that Moses treasured Christ over the things of the world. Moses, the great lawgiver, forsakes the power, position, and pleasure of the world to suffer with the people of God who are slaves and brutally slaves rather than enjoy the short-lived pleasure of sin. He weighed the scales and said, between being a son of the Pharaoh and acquainted with slaves who are just treated horribly, I choose this because I'm longing for the ultimate reward through the Messiah to come. How can this be? He was attentive to the reward, the actual weight and reality of life. Moses trusted in what was more sure than he could see with his eyes, 
in the promised one who was not yet seen, the Messiah to come. He treasured Christ and forsook the world. Number three, they endured seeing him who is invisible, which led to practical steps and actions. Verse 27, by faith, he left Egypt behind, not being afraid of the king's anger, for Moses persevered as one who sees him who is invisible. If you're not familiar with the story, what happens is Moses is, um, he's a son in Pharaoh's house and he's walking around one day and sees an Egyptian brutalizing um, an Israelite, beating him, and Moses kills the Egyptian. Um, Then it comes to his attention that uh, the Pharaoh knows he killed this guy and he flees, he leaves. Uh, And you read it in Exodus and you kind of feel like, man, uh, Moses kind of seems like a wuss. Like he didn't, he wasn't like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? No, he left, he ran. You can turn to Acts chapter 7 and Stephen picks up this and, and says, Moses was afraid and he fled for his life. But here in, in Hebrews 11, we see by faith he left, not being afraid of the king's anger. How, what? You know, if Moses had really been afraid of the king's anger, he wouldn't have run for his life he would have groveled at the throne, saying, wow, I'm, I know I'm one of your sons. Please just accept me back into your household. I'm sorry that I did this. I'd rather be a son in your house than, than a slave here. That would have been true fear from Moses. But by faith, he left. Instead of groveling, he chose to suffer with the people instead of give it up to be a son in the, in the Pharaoh's house. I'm not condoning killing people and running. That's not faith or faithful. So I'm American, so I feel like I just have to clarify a few of these things. Like I'm not, I'm not saying that, eh? In faith, he goes the other way. By faith, verse 28, he institutes the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch the Israelites. By faith, they crossed the Red Sea as though they were on dry land. When the Egyptians attempted to do this, they were drowned likely because they didn't have faith, but definitely because God was rescuing his people. Every action they took was based on their faith. And that's that's the story their lives tell now. What, What story do your actions tell? If I was a fly on the wall in your house or in the private conversation of your mind, what story would I walk away with? Wow, they're really treasuring Christ. They're really forsaking the world and enduring in faith? Or would I hear, ah, they do nice Christian things on Sunday and then they do whatever else, treasuring the world. What conclusion would you come to if you did that to me? Because the question is, when the rubber meets the road, where's your trust? What's it founded in? Are you trusting in a spouse? Then my life will be amazing. Are you trusting in your education? Are you trusting in some future? Are you trusting in some government to fix the world? Where's your hope? Where's your longing? How can you endure? Or the actions of your heart and life determined by the once and for all effective sacrifice of Christ on behalf of sin? Faith, even still, there's nothing else we're called to look to in the Bible but faith and to live by faith. Verse 32, what more can I say? Time is too short for me to talk about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, 
administer justice. That's what we need in the world, eh? Obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the raging of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, gained strength after becoming weak, became mighty in battle, and put foreign armies to flight. What can't faith do? What can't faith do? In the book of Acts, uh, when Jesus dies and is raised and then leaves, there's 120 people that are kind of clinging to this community of faith. And later in the book of Acts, as Paul and his associates are traveling, the critics, the critics say, oh, geez, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here. Their critics were saying they flipped the world upside down. How many people do you reckon are in this room? 65? 75? Half of that? You reckon by faith we could flip half the world? Because what's the obstacle? Is the obstacle that God is now different or changed? Or is the obstacle that we don't have this faith? But there's some clarifications we need to make here in order to check our own hearts and make sure we're remaining biblical in our understanding of what faith can do. Uh, Because faith is not a unique concept. It's not like I I said faith and everybody in the room was kind of like, what's that? The whole world understands faith in one way, shape, or form. But one of the predominant ways that faith is depicted to us, (coughs) I hate, uh, uses this same terminology but has nothing to do with biblical faith. For for example, uh, it's pictured as this sort of like zen-like Jedi force ability that allows you to manhandle the world and and do whatever you please. Um, I'm getting older, so the movie that I see this most clearly in in my mind is, is The Matrix. Just quick show of hands, seen The Matrix? Okay, cool. I'm, I got 50. Uh, I'm not that old. At the, towards the end of The Matrix, and if you haven't seen the movie, it's basically this. The main character, Neo, is kind of wrestling through the whole movie with whether or not he's the one. You know, All these people are like, you're the one, you can fix things. You're not the one, you're the one, you're the one. That's the movie, okay? You've all now seen The Matrix. <laughs> And at the end of the movie, he gets in this big fight, and he, he, he dies. And uh, the, the secret of the movie is they're all in this, like, computer-simulated program. And so he hears whispered in his ear, you can't be dead because I love you. You're the one. And bah, he busts back into life and kind of stands back up. And the guys he's fighting are like, what? And uh, they start firing bullets, and he's like, no. <laughs> and all the bullets stops, and he grabs it, and he's like, you know, and he just goes and tears people apart because, you know, it's a movie, it's a video game, that's, that's fine in those situations. And on the, and on the outside, you, you screw up outside to the people that are watching in this, this, you know, no situation, and they're like, what's happening? And enter Lawrence Fishburne, he is beginning to believe. <laughs> Guys, that's, that's, just not, that's just not what we're talking about. Uh, now, you, you may be thinking, ah, oh, but Jesus said, with a mustard seed of faith, you can say to this mountain, into the sea, and it goes. Those are the words of Jesus, Andy. What do you think? Yeah, of course Jesus said that. Of course he meant that. And if, if, the, if the biggest obstacle in front of the advance of the gospel, the advance of these promises, the endurance by faith is a mountain, Jesus will cast it into a sea. But what do you think is more likely? Mustard seeds, if you don't know, by the way, are tiny. If I told you there's a mustard seed on your seed, if I had put them there, you'd never find them. They're tiny. So a mustard seed of faith can say to this mountain, this, this zen-like Jedi force, you know, I live behind one tree hill and I could be like, 
I want to see the city. <laughs> you know, and then, you know, somebody else is like, I liked it where it was. And then we get in this like, kind of kind of thing. Is that what you think Jesus was intending? It's raining today. No. Or, or, do you think that he's saying that by even the tiniest amount of faith in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, the mountain of your sin could be cast into the sea of God's wrath that was borne by him on the cross. The mountain of your weakness and frailty because of your lack of faith could be cast onto Christ and buried in the sea. Micah 7, 19, Psalm 103, if you want to go where I'm coming from. I don't think Jesus is talking about spiritual Minecraft. He's talking about enduring by knowledge, conviction, and trust in Christ. This treatment of faith is shoddy. It's painful to treat it like it's this Zen-like thing. The last church I was involved in 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 the U.S., there was a woman in the church who'd had this chronic cough. She has some sort of indeterminate throat issue that means at all times she's basically coughing which makes it near impossible for her to come to a public place. And there were people in the church that were saying things, and they got rebuked pretty hard. So, But they were saying things like, I don't think you should come. I think if you had faith, God would heal you. I am American. I will get angry about some things. That angers me. You look at somebody who has some lifelong illness and say, dude, where's your faith? not what we're talking about what we're talking about is treasuring christ over and above the weight of the world consider this because i read this big line quenches fire admonishes administers justice conquers kingdoms verse 35 women even received back their dead they were raised to life again oh that that would happen but it continues some men were tortured not accepting release, so that they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They died by the sword. They wandered in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute. That sounds nice. Afflicted. Mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. It's not that the world gets to look at these people and say, where's your faith? You just got sawed in half. No, the world wasn't worthy of them and their treasuring of Christ over and above the things of this world. They wandered in deserts on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these, verse 39, were approved through their faith, but they didn't receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us so that they wouldn't be made perfect without us, they endured in the promises and will we all be made perfect together when Christ returns at the end. Chapter 12, verse 1. How do, we, how do we do this? How do we wrestle with these things? 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we have this large cloud of witnesses, since we can look back over biblical history and say all of these people endured by faith and were commended by God, this cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source, the perfecter, or the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised its shame and has sat down at the right hand of God. 
Verse 3, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. How do we endure? How do we be ones who treasure the promises, trust the promises, treasure Christ, and see him who's invisible? The question is, what's holding you back? Let's run the race with endurance, is what it says. Casting aside, laying aside every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. Cast that mountain. Because whatever ensnares you in life definitely feels like a mountain. At least it does for me. I don't think I'm unique. Cast that mountain into the sea. Perhaps you're beset in your mind in some sin, in some struggle, some situation that always trips you up, some worry, some temptation. Cast it off. Now, maybe that's purely mental, but for me, any casting off of sin I've ever done has been a practical exercise. It's always accompanied tangible actions, the seeking of accountability, opening dialogues to get help, advice, changing habits. Cast it off. Lay it aside. Run the race set before you. What's God calling you to in your life? Do you know? Some, some people have, um, and I admire these people, this just definite senses of call, you know? So I have a friend who's basically, ever, ever since I've known him, it's, I will minister long-term in the Middle East. And he has this call, and he will do that. And he's moving in a few months. I've never been that way. But if you're not sure, here's a few things we're all called to. We're all called to have faith in Christ. That's the difference between life and death. We're all called to love God and to love others as ourselves. We're all called to make disciples, share the good news. We're all called to these things. Run this race. Run the race that's set before you. And keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't despair by getting entangled in sin. Don't get lost by running off course. Keep your eyes on Him. And consider how joyfully He suffered the cross. You know, the worst thing we'll probably suffer is like somebody thinks we're dumb. Maybe it'll get worse than that, but likely we'll like mention faith and somebody will be like, I think he's into that Zen Jedi thing uh, and we'll be seen as dumb. That's probably the worst thing out there. But consider him and follow suit. Where do you go when the world starts to crowd in around you? Where do you go when it feels like it's shaking underneath your feet? Where do you go when you turn on the news and your heart despairs? When you struggle to turn on Facebook because you don't want to see what new thing happened today? What do you do when getting out of bed feels like the worst thing, the hardest thing? Focus, fix, force your attention to Christ. I don't always do this perfectly, but one practice that has always helped me um, in my Christian life and that honestly helps me get out of bed some days because I'm not dreaming up scenarios I don't understand. It's hard for me. I want to read the news. I want to know what's going on, but it's hard for me to feel like I can and not walk away despair. It's hard for me to feel like I can face whatever's coming. But the practice I've adopted is called preaching the gospel to myself. So oftentimes, my time in the scripture is merely looking, what did Jesus do? What does that mean for me? Where do I go in my sin? What promises have I been given by God? 
I could, I could spend a long time talking at this, and I'm happy if you're interested in explaining more or answering questions about it. But the gist of the point of what I'm saying is this. Figure out how to stick your heart in the good news of Christ instead of in the bad news of the world. If you will ever endure by faith, figure out how to take the inner core of who you are and stick it in Christ, in the promises, in Him who is invisible, and not in the bad news or the crap of the world. What is it for you? I'm going to pause for 15 seconds. If you have something to mind that you need to think through on this, do that, and then I'm going to pray, and we'll call it. What is it for you? What's holding you back? What are you being called to trust?